Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, Blame Tennis is back. The Prime Minister's return to work is attended by a chorus of voices saying that criticising him and his government is just not on. It's gotcha journalism. It's missing the mood of the nation. Is Boris Johnson getting away with it again? Why isn't he carrying the can for his own government's failures? Plus, these are heroic days for the NHS, but what comes next? Health policy analyst and NHS commentator Roy Lilly joins us to discuss the future of British healthcare. And what have we learned during lockdown? Not so much about making sourdough and learning French, but you know, insights and stuff. All this and more in today's bunker. Hello, welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to announce that we've reached our target of 100,000 listeners. We sent out 100,000 podcasts. Don't know what happened to any of them, but we're saying we've done it. So mission accomplished. Well done. Don't forget, we're doing another live stream podcast with Romaniacs this Thursday at 10 past eight. It's taking place on Zoom, like everything these days. And you can join in by supporting The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you'll get access to the live stream, plus the podcast with no adverts in it, mugs, t-shirts, and all kinds of good stuff. Find out more on our social media or search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out. Now, let's meet the panel. Returning to the bunker, she's comedian, writer, former New Labour spin doctor, and now editor of the London Diary in the Evening Standard. It's Asia Hazarika. Hello, Asia. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Um, not bad, not bad. Uh, so we understand that you're presently in uh, serious training for Have I Got News for You this week. <laughs> I am. It's going to be so bizarre um, because it's like done virtually. Um, so... Uh, a man is coming to my house in a sort of Hamzat suit to, to set up some <laughs> mobile studio. I'm having to warn my neighbours that um, there's going to be strange men coming in going from my house. I mean, if only, but like it's not, it's not anything that exciting. So, yes, I'm getting myself all ready for it and um, trying to avoid any bookshelves being in the background. Well, I was going to say, have you been rearranging your bookshelves? You know, you know what would Sarah Vine say if she retweeted yours? What's What's up there? Well, n- not enough Hitler memorabilia. <laughs> She's been like, I, you've really let the side down. You've got a lot of diet books, but not enough books on dictators. Like, I think that's really what's missing in your life. I think she'd be quite dismayed with my bookcase choice. 
Making his Bunker FC debut today, it's legendary journalist and broadcaster and the second Scott on today's show, Gavin Esler. Hello, Gavin. Welcome to the Bunker. I, I, how are you and where are you? Hello. Very well. Yes, very well. I'm I'm in Kent and uh, I'm in my front room and you may hear uh, any time in the next few minutes, you may hear the dog barking, uh, an Amazon delivery or my children running up and down the, the, the stairs screaming. So all is well. In the the relaxing sounds of everyday life, the, the, the bunker produced by the orb. Um, so what did you make of, of, of Bookgate? Would you would you have hastily rearranged your shelves to, uh, you know, to take away anything that may possibly provide a chink in your armour, as it were? Well, I, I, I'm sure I've got lots of... I've certainly got lots of books on dictators. There's no question of that. I mean, I've definitely got a... a, a I just bought a book on Napoleon recently. I'm sure I've got some about Hitler somewhere. I don't know where. Uh, I've definitely got one about Boris Johnson. So it'll all be... Uh, <laughs> they're, they're all in there. Um, uh, I, I don't think I've got anything particularly embarrassing... My one thing, which I, I probably shouldn't confess because it will drive some of your audience to uh, hate me, is I don't understand why people colour code their bookshelves. Because I think books are for reading, not looking at the covers, but that probably makes me a little bit on the wild side. Did you enjoy the story <laughs> last week of the, uh, the, the woman who deep cleaned a library somewhere in America and rearranged all the books by size? I like that. I saw that. I saw that. That very much. I have to say, though, as as possibly everybody else uh, listening to this uh, this uh, podcast will do, I I did rearrange my bookshelves in a moment of total boredom, and I thought I'll do this in an hour or two. And a day and a half later, I was still dusting the books. It's amazing how much they collect. Collect. Well, whatever gets you through this difficult period, thoughts upon. They're living the life. Absolutely. Um, Johnny was today's show. Uh, is uh, someone who was a major hit on the Bunker Daily. One listener said they learned more about the NHS from him in 25 minutes than they had in a lifetime of working in the NHS. Uh, it's health policy analyst, writer, broadcaster and commentator Roy Lilly. All right, Roy, how are you? Greetings, uh, everybody. Uh, I'm super good, thank you. Super good. Um, I've decamped from uh, my place in Surrey and I'm uh, staying in my flat in London. So I've got a lovely view of the Thames. Um, I've got a balcony that's as sunny as it possibly could be anywhere in the south of France this time of the year. Um, I'm hoping to strike up a meaningful relationship with a very nice lady from Ocado who pops in once a <laughs> good stuff. Um, I've rearranged my bookcase. I've got the Karma Sutra uh, right in the front uh, and I'm hoping for fan mail. So there you go. I'm OK. Well, the things you can get from Ocado these days. Um <laughs> So, so we've just seen today uh, this the, the the app has been released the uh, the uh, the contact app the monitoring app um, to uh, monitor the spread of of, uh, of of coronavirus which has been, pro- been promised for some time. Roy, as Captain Health, what's your hot take on this app? Is it going to work? Does it make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It makes a lot of sense, and a lot of people are talking a lot of rubbish about it as well. Um, it's look. It, it, I, I'm just going to very briefly run through how it works because there's a lot of misinformation about how it works. It works off of Bluetooth, so it's not connected to Wi-Fi. That's the important thing. So one phone only connects with another phone. If you come across someone with symptoms, it will tell you, and you can self-isolate. Uh, if you have symptoms, you can press the button and it will connect you with NHS 111. It doesn't keep any of your details other than what NHS 111 might uh, elicit from you, like what's your name and where do you live, because we might have mm-hmm. to send an ambulance. Um, and that's it, really. And the the, the contacts are uh, what they call pseudonymized. That means that nobody really knows who they are. 
and then um, uh, they can plot and track and trace where the uh, the COVID nineteen is doing its uh, its evil worst, and can try and do something about the transmission. So. I think it's a very good thing. Funny enough, I've uh, before we started recording, I was just talking uh, on the wireless uh, in the Isle of Wight about this, and they're all very excited. There are one or two people who have uh, got hold of the wrong end of the stick and haven't really quite understood and think Big Brother's going to come and look through their letterbox. Um, but fundamentally, I think that the people in the Isle of Wight will, will go for this. Um, and I say that because... I think people are just so fed up with this lockdown and, and our compliance has been very good as well. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this is, this is a way forward and a way out. Um, they're saying that you need uh, 60 to 80% compliance. Actually, you don't. If you've got 20%, you can start to get some meaningful data. So, so I'm optimistic and please God it works and then we can all get back to normal. Mm. Um, this week also we saw that the, the Nightingale hospitals uh, are being placed on standby after receiving fewer patients than were expected. And Alex Andreo from, from our team said he, he thought that this just showed that the hospitals had essentially been a photo opportunity rather than a serious kind of health intervention. Do you agree? Do you think, you know, is it the fact that it, they didn't receive the patients that they were expecting? Does it kind of, uh, you know, invalidate the idea of the Nightingale hospitals? No, I mean, they didn't build them for fun. They built the, the NHS didn't decide just to build a few hospitals for fun. He built them on the basis of the epidemiological forecast that we thought we were going to have. It cleared out 33,000 standard beds uh, across all of the hospitals and built these places in the expectation that um, the epidemiological forecast would be right. Actually, as it's happened, lockdown, I think, has been more successful than was originally expected. And the so-called curve, this magic curve that everybody, I mean, everybody's an epidemiologically, I I can't spell it, I can't even say it, but everybody can spell it or say it, but we all are one. (laughs) We're all epi. Do you remember when David Beckham uh, at the World Cup broke his metatarsal? (laughs) (laughs) We all became experts on repair and and, uh, um, uh, bonding of metatarsals. Well, we're all epidemiologic, epidemic, well, you know, we're all those people. The the science of getting sick and better. Um, And uh, we're all experts now and i think you know it's easy to look back and say oh well we shouldn't have built them you know because i'm sitting on the sofa and i'm very wise and i'm my cushions are made of hindsight actually no i mean it was a sensible thing to do we're not out of the woods yet i mean there's no question about it that i mean i expect we'll get on to what happens when they take the lid off of all this and uh, it's a transmission disease the more people who are out and about uh, will be more people who catch it and i wouldn't be at all surprised if they don't have to put the lid back on so we're not out of the woods uh, and of course the other thing is this because the nhs has been very busy doing other things it's not been doing its regular bread and butter work like giving people new hips knees and cataracts and repairing their hernias so there's probably i'm guessing i'm guessing here but they before covid there were 4.4 million people on the waiting list my guess now but I wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't end up nudging six million people who need an operation. And so the regular hospitals will be very busy and all the COVID cases will go to the Nightingale hospitals because they're not proper hospitals. They're hospitals that are geared up to do ventilation. So I, I expect there'll be a subtle shift in where the patients go. So it's, uh, I think uh, it's, no, it's no bad thing we've got them and I'm pleased we did it. 
So let's start with that question of accountability. Almost 30,000 people are now known to have died with COVID-19. The editor of The Lancet has described the government's handling of the crisis in the UK as the most serious science policy failure in a generation. Scandal follows scandal, from the failure to join the EU effort to bulk buy medical equipment, to the availability of ventilators, to the inflation of figures on testing just to meet an artificial goal. Yet despite all this, approval ratings for the government and the Prime Minister remain as high as ever, and in some cases they are rising. How are they getting away with it? Aisha, what do you think voters are not holding the government completely responsible for these failures? Do people not want to admit that the government might be doing a bad job? I think it's a I think it's more that voters probably look at things from the other end of the telescope. I think voters and the public really want the government to succeed and they need to believe in the government because what has happened is so overwhelming. It's completely changed our way of life. It's affected our lives, our livelihoods. You know, everyone is in, you know, in kind of suspended animation. So I think from a sort of mental health point of view to get through this, you sort of want to believe in your leaders because otherwise, what is the point? And if you if you didn't believe in them, then I think that would take you into quite a a scary place. And, you know, I think it's important to say that everybody should, whatever your politics, you can think Boris Johnson is the biggest buffoon to have ever walked the planet, but you should want him to succeed. We all have skin in the game. You know, we want the government to to win on this. None of us are going to benefit if this, you know, thing gets even worse. And, you know, we, we talk about the health problems, the economic um, hangover is going to be absolutely horrific from this as well. But I think what, so I think that's where the kind of, um, the sort of shift in view and that's where the kind of the divide is in terms of where the sort of where media and critics are and where the where the public is as well i think the format of the virtual press conferences haven't helped because as you know when you're interviewing somebody it's quite hard to do a kind of a, a follow-up um, by Zoom. You can just get sort of cut off. And I do think some of the journalists' questions have not exactly been, they haven't exactly been laser sharp and brief. You know, sometimes you've had like four questions wrapped into one. And, you know, in a previous life, I used to prepare leaders for prime minister's questions. And if you wrap four questions into one, you give your opponent the best shot at looking good because he or she just picks the questions they want to to answer and open questions are also quite a, a, a bad you know set way of, of 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 kind of in you know pressing somebody um but you know what's also interesting is the number 10 hit back kind of classic we saw it in um, the 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 eu referendum we saw it in the run-up to when things got very heated on brexit what number 10 is very very good at doing right now and they've all this is their style is the minute things get complicated and nuanced and technical and they will throw out a, a sort of a slogan and they always go on the attack as well. So by attacking the media for having the temerity to ask serious questions about what the government is doing, what they've done quite cannily, I think, is work out where the public is and they're trying to turn the public against the media as well. And they're doing that quite effectively at the moment. Gavin, what did you make of the, the kind of argument that was advanced this week from a lot of suspiciously similar social media posts saying that uh, journalism is missing the mood of the country. Journalists don't know what the country really feels like. 
Um, <laughs> what what well, do you think of that? I mean, so, you know, nobody ever went bankrupt bashing journalists, but what did you think of it? Well, a, a number of things. Firstly, I agree with most of what Aisha said. You know, uh, we all want the same thing. We want this to stop. We want people not to die. We want to find a cure or uh, we want to find a vaccine. We, we all want that. But we also want a degree of competence. And the idea that journalists haven't reflected the mood of the nation, there is no mood of the nation. There's not even a nation, actually. There's a number of nations. Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales are very different in many ways from England and increasingly increasingly so since the Brexit vote. London, in a sense, is almost its own nation in in this. So uh, it's a great, as Aisha said, it's a great kind of slogan. And the juggling with the figures, there's some, you know, we've we've seen the track record of that in the past, the 350 million a week for the NHS and Brexit. Nobody paid attention to the figure because we all wanted more money for the NHS. And they're very good within the government at doing that kind of thing. But the way we are seen outside the United Kingdom is quite extraordinary. I mean, I, the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia headline yesterday talked of the biggest failure in a generation. Where did Britain go so wrong? I've been talking to a lot of Irish friends in the Irish Republic who've gone a slightly different way. And one of them said to me recently, what on earth were you thinking? We cancelled the St. Patrick's Day parade and you went ahead with the Cheltenham Gold Cup. What on earth are you doing? Uh, others have reflected, and this is this is not about, you know, Boris Johnson's sickness, but before that, he was missing in action. He was a part-time mayor of London. He was, you know, writing newspaper columns and was also an MP. Part, being mayor of London is a full-time job, I would have thought. He was a part-time uh, Foreign Secretary as well. So his um, acuity with the facts or his paying attention uh, with the, to the facts and the details is not his strong suit. He is, however, a great communicator and he's got some very great communicators and uh, sloganeers around him. But the actual performance needs some scrutiny and it will get it. Uh, in the end, it will get it and it will get it even now because I think journalists have to hold governments to account. That's what they're for. We have seen this kind of strange contradictory data where people's approval of Boris Johnson himself has increased. And yet the Ipsos uh, Murray found that more people think the government acted too late now, uh, up to 66% to 57% two weeks ago. So how can people kind of approve of the prime minister, but not of his government and what it's doing? It's, it doesn't make sense, does it? It's kind of contradictory. Well, I think that's a really, really, really good point. We relate to Boris Johnson because he's a flawed human being like the rest of us. And uh, he and his partner have gone through this great event of having a child. And he's also gone through this life-changing, possibly, event of being very, very sick and contemplating his life. But, you know, back in 2009, David Cameron said, we're all in this together. And nobody quite believes that, actually, when you see that the richest 10 percent, the death rates in some areas are much lower for the richer among us than they are for the poorest among us. Newham in, in London, for example, 144 deaths per 100,000 people. Now, that whereas in richer areas, it's 25 uh, deaths per 100,000 people. And Roy Lilly will know the figures better than I do. But what does strike me is we say we're all in this together, but we're not. Health inequalities, uh, poverty and other things are playing a part in this. And we notice it. So we relate to Boris Johnson as a person. But when we look at how the government kind of blusters and the kind of politicians who appear on these news conferences who are, how can one put it, not entirely 
the masters of the uh, of the facts and some of whom can't quite get the figures right it is not very encouraging compared to some of the scientific experts who at least uh, are prepared to admit what they don't know mm. Roy, uh, one thing that the government seems to have been getting very much off the hook over has been care homes. Uh, people have been kept in care homes rather than being sent to hospital uh, where there'd be more adequate treatments, such as uh, CPAP oxygen. Is this, this, this is something that um, emerged in the middle of the, of, of the crisis, the fact that care homes were much more of a serious problem that, than had been expected. Older people are the Conservatives' base. Is this something that is... You know, it could emerge as the most serious aspect of the mismanagement of this this crisis. I think so, uh, and uh, and there's, there's I think there's more to come as well. Uh, it's it's not just care homes; it's the number of elderly, frail people who are in receipt of domiciliary care, uh, and with, there are no numbers on the numbers of those who have died whilst in receipt of domiciliary care. So we, we really don't know. Look, the care home story is, is a long old story. I mean, it's a fragmented market that's run between um, uh, quite a lot of mum and papa shop outfits, you know, ex-nurses, social workers, what have you, running a small care home. Um, and there are big players, but they're only 14% of the market. So you've got Four Seasons, uh, HC1, Booper, people like that. And, and you've got the, you know, if you look at HC1, it, 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 it made a 68 million pound loss last year, but spent 40, sent 40 million quid of its profits in rental payments to a sister company, uh, in a, in a tax haven. And then they turn around and they say, well, why aren't the government supplying us with PPE? I mean, I think that there is an aspect of this that says, look, these are wealthy businesses making a lot of money. Where was their business resilience? Where was their epidemic planning? Where was their stocks of PPE? Why is it that they've suddenly come to the NHS and said, we can't cope with this? You see, what's happened is over time, we used to have nursing homes and care homes and nursing homes nursed people and care homes did cream teas and they played, you know, Vera Lynn and sung the White Cliffs of Dover. But what's happened over time is the frailty of people in care homes has gone off the edge of the cliff and we, we, they are now in need of nursing care. Almost no one ever transfers from a care home to a nursing home because there are all kinds of bureaucratic problems with it and funding issues. If you're in a nursing home, it's paid for by the NHS. If it's in a care home, you probably have to pay for it yourself or the local authority pays for it. So people in care homes, they don't have to have any nursing support. They have scant medical support and they're looked after by well-intentioned people, many of whom English is not their first language, many of whom are not properly trained other than very basic health and safety training who turn up and do their best. They've not had proper PPE training. They haven't had no infection control training. Is it any wonder that the staff have brought in the infection and it's gone through the, the care home population like a forest fire? Uh, it's it's a disgrace. We it, it's it's an obvious place. Where would you find the the uh, the virus most likely to spread? Well, it's in the elderly and the older population. So, what did the government do? It said old people over seventy uh, are got to be banged up and they can't go out. We're going to first of all, it was they were going to cocoon them, then they were going to shield them, uh, and they, no mention. There was no mention of care homes, and I think. 
in, in, out of fairness to the government, or naivety at least, I think they thought, well, care homes, they're going to be okay for now because people are being looked after and cared for. Actually, they're not looked after and cared for other than, you know, the, the very basics. And I'm not at all surprised that we've had an absolute disaster in care homes and there will be more to come of that, I'm sure. And it's not just here. It's in other countries as well where they've got care home models and people have died absolutely, completely and totally unnecessarily, in my view, because there's been nobody in there who really understands how to deal with this. We might be experiencing the NHS's finest hour, but there will come a time when it won't be dealing with all COVID all the time. So what does the future hold for an NHS that's arguably never been more valued or more politically contested? All institutions have to change with time. How will the NHS evolve in the aftermath of the coronavirus? Roy, you strongly believe the NHS is now safe, but what does safe mean? Does it have the latitude to evolve as doctors and clinicians might want rather than politicians now? Well, it is interesting, isn't it? I, I, I said earlier that I, I decamped from Surrey up to to London, to the flat in London. And where I live, it's um, it's a multicultural place. I love living here, a lot of young families and all the rest of it. And the first Thursday evening I was here, um, they did the, uh, you know, I went out on the balcony. I thought, I wonder if anybody will clap. And there were, it's like the United Nations where I live. And there were people from every part of the world out on the, bank, out on the balcony banging their saucepans and i do you know what you know i've been around a bit and i'm probably a cynic on most things but i had tears in my eyes when i saw that i just didn't believe it it was such an emotional moment and i just thought it was terrific but the nhs well i mean it's going to be a tough old politician now that's going to say they want to break it up or they want to privatize it or they want it run by the private sector i don't think that i mean we've had that we've had part of the problem the nhs has had it has no regional structures i mean we could have bought ppe on a regional basis done testing on a regional basis a lot of stuff we could do on a regional basis but unfortunately andrew lanz's reforms in 2012 the tory idiot that nearly wrecked the nhs uh, he got he did away with regions and we're busy trying to put regions back together again i mean there's so much you need region regional management for but so I think it's going to be a tough politician that's going to mess with the NHS. I think a lot of people will look at the funding of the NHS. Already, one of the big one of the newspapers is saying the NHS needs to have a pay rise and all that, which is all very good. But somehow we've got to pay for it. But I tell you the big thing, the absolute big thing. I've been in and around the NHS for nearly 50 years. And for, for 30 of those years, I've been trying to push the NHS into using more technology, more digital solutions, um, more remote control, talking to your doctor. You know, now we can do it on smartphones, outpatients appointments, all that sort of stuff. For th and I've seen all of that come in three weeks. Things I've been campaigning and trying to get done in 30 years. It's happened in three weeks because we've had to do it. And we won't want to go back. The staff won't want to go back. And the public for an outpatient's appointment are not going to take off a day off work, park in an NHS car park, pay 10 quid for the privilege, sit in a drafty corridor for an, uh, uh, for an appointment that's running late and be told, thanks very much, you're OK, go home. Public won't have it. So um, I think that we're in for a much more technologically based future. Aisha, as long as I've been alive and paying attention, uh, the NHS has been in crisis. The NHS has been under attack. The NHS has been in trouble. Do the problems that we think 
the NHS suffers from because you know, we've all had experience of waiting lists and you know older relatives who can't get a, can't get an appointment and the social care stuff that that Roy's just talked about. We've all got our personal in, individual kind of atomized experiences of it. Does the general public have a fair picture of what works and doesn't work in the NHS? Do you think, or do we have a kind of selection of kind of shared fears that we're not really sure what the foundation is, but we're kind of pretty sure there's something bad going on there? Well, I think the NHS is a, a kind of quite a unique institution in in this country in the sense that we have a very emotional um, connection with it. We don't view it as being sort of distant or as something, you know, that, that we feel very remote from. We have a lot of affection for the NHS and it's almost like a faith uh, in in politics. Certainly, you know, in, if you're on the progressive end of of politics, um, the the NHS is is like a it's like your church. Um, and when I was in, particularly in Labour politics, I mean, the the mantra is, I mean, I remember when we would be preparing for big speeches in the Commons or PMQs, if you wanted to get a huge cheer and a roar from the Labour benches, as and indeed the SNP and and the Lib Dems, you know, the the, the classic line would be, and you know, as 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 day follow as night follows day, you cannot trust the Tories with the NHS, and that was the kind of perceived sort of mantra in terms of. Um, politics and I think that's that's still very much the case but I think what does happen is we have such high regard and rightly so for our um, nurses and doctors and everybody else who um, helps prop up the NHS but that kind of affection sometimes does mask a conversation about what is really going on in the NHS, what the NHS does very, very well and what it struggles with because the NHS is brilliant when there is a crisis like this or if you have a very, very acute um, sort of emergency or, you know, a a genuine medical emergency, even if you are in private care and you're one of those people, as, as Roy rightly said, some people are very sniffy about the NHS, you know, you can be in your private healthcare system but if something really serious happens guess what you are whisked back into the NHS but there are issues we have to look at and I think that one of the things is um, the the way the NHS is organised and I mean I was um, an advisor for the opposition when Andrew Lansley was doing those reforms and we did an organogram of of all the new um, you know kind of chaos that was brought and it was like sort of alphabetic spaghetti <laughs> looking at all the you know, it was like, oh my God, this, you just cannot get your sort of head around how complicated these, you know, you're just adding more and more sort of um, challenge to the, to the, to the, to the running of the NHS. NHS does acute very well. I think what it, what it should be doing, one of the, the things that whether there's an inquiry now or whenever it happens, and Gavin alluded to this in terms of um, health inequalities, but clearly comorbidity factors have really, really helped. People's general health has really affected this as well. So obesity levels, um, diabetes, obviously looking at BAME conditions. I think one of the things that I think it was really important for the NHS to start doing as well is looking at how to prevent things so they don't just end up becoming acute down the track and if there's another sort of pandemic we've got these terror i mean we're we're re- i wouldn't say we're the sick man of europe but we're like we're we're like the chubby <laughs> man of europe right we're like sort of like we're the kind of alcoholic um sort of like man of europe or woman of europe um at the moment so we've got to look at this and and also the other thing is um pay um and 
you know, pay of nurses, but also how we've structured hospitals. So much has been outsourced now. I think there's a genuine question about bringing back in-house a lot of things like cleaning services, which are really, really important to having healthy hospitals and happy hospitals and, and healthcare facilities. But also, um, I think the other issue as well is, is um, God, it's totally gone out of my head now. I've, I, I'm clearly, I've gone, of course, is is what, what M. Roy was saying about um, adult social care. I mean, it has been long opined upon about how ideally you would bring social care together with the NHS, particularly on a regional level. And this is something that politicians has been, have been talking about for such a... I mean, I've been in politics since 1997, and it's something that, you know, people were sort of talking about back in the day, and we have not made any progress on this. And if there's one glaring lesson that comes out of this is you cannot just hive off social care as a sort of um, an additional thing. It is insane that this is not part of, of health. In fact, social care sits under local authorities. It sits under um, the communities and local government department. And of course, which department has been hit pretty much the worst of out of 10 years of austerity? It's been local authority budgets, which of course have had a huge impact on um, adult social adult care in, in the community. So if we don't take that one basic thing away, then we are complete idiots. Gavin, just to wrap this section up, um, Aisha just mentioned how the surest way to get a chairline at a Labour conference or indeed any any anywhere on the kind of soft left onwards is to say you can't trust the Tories with the NHS. But they won the Brexit referendum on the NHS. They've just won a general election talking a lot about the NHS, even before the COVID emergency, there was talk of a huge increase in spending uh, in the NHS from the Conservative Party. Are people out in the country now, you know, buying the idea that you can trust the consensus with the with the NHS? I'm one of those people that uh, whose life was saved by the NHS. When I was three weeks old in Glasgow, I had an operation uh, which uh, managed to keep me alive. And my grandmother said to me at the time, if you were of my generation, you'd have died because nobody could have afforded the operation. So I have as emotional an attachment to the NHS as, uh, as anyone, but it's, it's not perfect. Uh, I don't, however, agree that the, uh, the NHS and trusting the Tories with the NHS won the Brexit referendum for them. I mean, for example, just uh, Sir Michael uh, Marmot, Professor Sir Michael Marmot, one of the health inequalities experts, pointed out that life expectancy has stalled for the first time in 100 years in England among the poorest women. Uh, it has declined since 2011. The rich-poor life expectancy gap is, is huge. Uh, people know that. That's the way it affects their lives. And they also know that uh, the, the question of the reorganisation of the NHS, if you talk to anybody in the NHS, they say it is the alphabeti spaghetti. It makes absolutely no sense. However, they also say, many of them anyway, that the idea of, that journalists talk about a postcode lottery, if you're one part of the country, you get different treatment from another. We need to stop thinking in those terms. We need to think instead that the nations and regions of this country, if you're in Newport or Newcastle or, or Newham, you may have different health problems because you live in a completely different area. It's not a postcode. That's where you happen to live. And so therefore, to localise much more the kinds of services, and also obviously to integrate social care has got to be one of the ways forward uh, in the future. And it's got to be grasped, which it wasn't by Andrew Lansley. And one other thing I would say is, I think 
the NHS should be the envy of the world, but it actually isn't. You know, uh, we compare ourselves to the United States in terms of outcomes and expenditure, and we do brilliantly. But when I go to other countries, Germany is a good example. Some, some friends of mine in Germany said, why do you have a winter beds crisis every winter? We, we never, we don't even know what that is. So there are things that we can learn from other systems. And whether that involves a degree of private money or not a degree of private money, frankly, I don't really care as long as it works. It, it definitely seems to involve more money and not just throwing more money at the NHS, but throwing it wisely. But I think we do have things to learn from other healthcare systems. And while I absolutely love the NHS and have strong reasons to do so, I hope that if it is safe, as Roy suggests, that it is safe but we can have a mature conversation as to what we want out of it, and it can be better. Finally, lockdown has given us all a lot of time to get some perspective, too much perspective. Some of us might even be thinking that we don't want things to go back to normal, but we've certainly spent a lot of time contemplating. It's not just about how our personal routines have changed. What insights, whether they be political, cultural, or just looking at society in general, have we unearthed while being stuck indoors? Gavin, what is your time to contemplate given you? What have you learned on lockdown? <laughs> quite, quite a lot, I think. I hope, anyway. One of the things is, I think people are friendlier. I think people, when I walk on the street and people move out of my way, I always say hello. There's sometimes a little conversation. There's a lot more smiling. People seem to be um, wanting to connect in our little few moments of connection during the day. So that's one, th one, one thing that I do like, that the ability to connect with our families and friends. I've been connecting with friends of mine and families in uh, in Scotland and Ireland and Germany and elsewhere. And so that's been something that, I, that I've noticed, this pool of the, the necessity to connect. Personally, I've been slightly confused as to why I find watching TV actually quite a bore. <laughs> I, I just can't bear it. So I've watched much less TV. Uh, I certainly don't watch the, the, the daily press conferences, which drive me up the wall. Uh, and I've found that I'm, I'm less tolerant of reading fiction, reading novels, and more tolerant of reading non-fiction. I don't know why that's true, because I would have thought I would be more escapist in my head, wanting to escape more. But for some reason, I actually like to read facts and facts rather than fiction do you think that that might that sort of uh, retreat from television might be because in the old way of doing things it was your treat at the end of the day your moment to unwind after your hectic day of being in a different physical space and now you're spending so much time at home it doesn't really feel like that much of a change you spent all day looking at the screen that is a good point i do spend a lot of my day i'm writing another book and i'm spending a lot of my day looking at a, a screen on my macbook so uh yeah that that, that might be part of it the other, the other great delight however is that i do think that the few minutes of exercise, I do a little bit of cycling and just to get out for 20 minutes, a half an hour and cycle, I do have a real sense of freedom. It's as if I have escaped from, you know, Alcatraz for at least 20 minutes. That idea that people have been are maybe a bit more pleasant or sort of realise it, you know, one hates to wheel out the old blitz spirit thing because it's been so politically weaponized and made so kind of toxic by, uh, you know, rather unpleasant people who want, to, who want to use and abuse it. But, you know, I, I can remember grandparents saying, you know, there were parts of the war that people enjoyed in a strange way. 
there were all you know the parts of it that they found kind of that they would look back uh, with a degree of wistfulness and i think we kind of dismissed that um at our peril you know nobody enjoyed being at war it was it was dreadful it was it killed millions but there was just that aspect that it was that things had changed things were different and it was uh, an odd and an almost unreal moment in history that people you know found fascinating and i just wonder whether that might be something that happens this time I think that I think that definitely is part of it. I uh, certainly, I mean, there's one uh, elderly neighbour that I hadn't spoken to before. I'd b- barely seen her, and we've made contact. We've offered to do some shopping. My my kids make um, I've made some things for her to hang in her window. Uh, I now think I know one of my neighbours that I didn't know before, and I know other. There's a a guy who's a local painter. I saw walking along the street with a, a couple of big shopping bags. And I said something like, you're up early. And he was going to a house uh, to one of his neighbours to deliver some shopping. Now, I mean, these are just small acts of kindness, but they do they do mean a great deal. So I, I genuinely do think that being forced to be disconnected has made us value the connections when they take place. Aisha, how about you? What kind of uh, what, what insights have you come into uh, while uh, in your Camden fastness? I think what I've learned about myself is that I'm really lazy. <laughs> like <laughs> like sort of criminally lazy like sometimes you know gavin's like oh i can't wait to get sometimes i'm like oh god i've been forced to go out for a walk today because of like the government i hate them this is like a totalitarian state like i think i've sort of I, i'm living the life of like a teenage boy like in terms of and i'm quite my so i am slightly horrified at myself by that like some people are having a really wholesome lockdown and they're doing like loads of exercise and and self-care and I feel like I'm kind of because it is all quite traumatic I've sort of given myself permission to be like a really dreadful sort of like slovenly human being basically I think I mean I think I'm gonna like I'm gonna emerge and the poor NHS I'm gonna be like a walking ticking time bomb for the NHS in terms of all my like conditions I just like to apologize I'm happy to pay more now like start taking more tax off me right away but I do I mean I agree with Gavin like I do think that there's a kind of sense of like shared community is is definitely um apparent and um like I I'm in touch with my neighbours all the time now. Like I'd say we've, it's it's like the theme tune for neighbours. Like when when neighbours become good friends, <laughs> like yeah. Next door is only a foot a footstep away. It, it is like that, and then um. So in fact, the the I'm I'm constantly borrowing things off my neighbours. I think I've become slightly needy and annoying to them. Um. But so I think that's be, I think that's been good. But if I'm really honest, I do think that it's that 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 community and that sense of oh can have quite a nice time. I think it is. There is a flip side to this as well, because I know a lot of friends who don't live in an area like I live, and they're actually having quite a difficult time with their neighbours, particularly if you live somewhere where you're in flats, where it's really, really noisy, where you can, you know, the the walls are paper thin. And I think that is also causing like a lot of trauma for people as well from, from their neighbours, because we are living cheek by jowl in particularly in built up areas. So I think the kind of neighbour thing, there's like a double edge, you know, there's two sides to that sort of story. Um, the other thing that I have learned is, and the one thing that I have really, really enjoyed is not commuting. It is a joy not to be commuting, whether it's on the bus, whether it's on the tube, whether it's in a cab. And I think that's something that I hope we don't have to go back to. We waste so much of our lives traveling and it's really 
horrible. It's a, not a pleasant experience. I had to go into Parliament last week for, for a work thing. And like, you know, the bus was sort of quiet, but you can see like the, the, the kind of anxiety that people will feel about getting back on a bus because you are in a confined, hot space. Um, you know, you suddenly are aware of how close you are to, to people. In fact, I ended up having a, I was like the only person not wearing a face mask. And then I had a huge coughing fit because of my hay fever, not coronavirus. And of course, people absolute <laughs> death. I was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I've not got coronavirus. It's hay fever, and everybody was like, It's hay fever, honest. Get this petri dish of infection off the bus now. Um, so I do think that I do hope that we can find a way of, you know, like I know people are keen to get back into the office and have socialisation. I get that, but it is actually really good for you to not spend so much time being stressed about travelling. This is true, Roy. What? Uh... What insights and revelations have come to you in this strange moment of stillness well, that we're experiencing? If someone says we're going to make decisions based on the science, <laughs> I know what they mean. It depends whatever science they they they, they want to do. So, I've what science have you got? So I've kind of learned that. Um, I, as I said earlier, I, mean, I, I feel I'm in much a uh, community, and I've started a WhatsApp group. Um, and it's amazing how that all kind of I, I put one of these um, OCR. Uh, uh, funny mosaic things in the lift, you know, and I said, if you're on lockdown and you know, and click on this and it's the link to the WhatsApp group. So, and now we've got a WhatsApp group of, uh, I don't know how many people, but a lot of people. And there, you know, there was a guy last night looking for a Phillips screwdriver because he had to do something rather and somebody lent him a screwdriver. And then we've got people saying, ah, I've managed to get an Arcado slot. Does anybody want anything next Wednesday? Or So I've, I've kind of discovered community because where I normally live, which is, you know, miles from anywhere, the uh, I, I, I I've not experienced any of that. And, and the whole community thing, I, I really am enjoying being... Uh, part of a uh, a community I, I have i have actually discovered my inner slob um and, and, and i, and I uh, this might be too much information but i am actually um here broadcasting to the millions listening to us um in a pair of shorts and a vest um so I, <laughs> me too roy me too hey! <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I've got a very nice pink pair of shorts, darling. <laughs> me too, boy, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so I've discovered my own slop. That's that's pretty good. I have, I do actually have to make myself shave every day. Which me I, too, which boy, I promise me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Gavin is being suspiciously quiet here. I think he's probably he's probably sitting there with a collar and tie on. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's exactly. I'm like actually wearing a dinner jacket and bow tie. Is, is that what? Is that not what one wears when doing a podcast? Yes. Yes. I thought so. You, you're doing it, Andrew, aren't you? Actually. I- <laughs> I could do with a haircut, I have to say, although I've given up shaving. I think shaving is just a waste of my time. Well, you're an absolute slob, and I can't possibly be in the same podcast as Gavin. Please rub, rub all my bits out. I can't have that. Uh, but just to draw together things that uh, Aisha and Gavin have said, uh, Gavin talked uh, about Marmot and, and population health which, of course, is so important. I mean, public health was ripped out of the NHS and stuffed down the back passage of the town hall where they didn't really want to go. Uh, and the, the public health has been decimated, which is part of the problem we've had sorting all this lot out. Um, 
so population health is is really important and of course that feeds into what Asia was saying that you know we're lucky people uh, if if you know if this lasts another another six weeks well you know we can we can live on our backsides and on a sofa and you know we're lucky people but for a lot of people where you know they're living uh, cheek by jowl where population health it meets population lockdown it's very difficult for a lot of people so we can only hope that uh, we're going to get some better decisions on how we get out of lockdown than the decisions that took us into lockdown um and i think the, the only other things i mean I, I i really can't complain with my, my life as it is i'm very lucky uh, but I tell you what, I do not miss the travel. Aisha's absolutely right. You know, if I was going to get up and go to a hospital, do a speech or a conference or what have you, it's half past four in the morning, get up and get on the tube or the train. Well, I, I absolutely, <laughs> if I never do that again, it will be too soon. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a well, lockdown lout. That, that, that's uh, easy for you to say, Roy, but uh, uh, the, the great British <laughs> podcasting industry depends on people commuting, so I'm hoping everybody gets back on buses as soon as possible. With that vision of uh, Roy broadcasting in his pink shorts to you, uh, we draw you to the end of this week's edition of The Bunker. Thank you to our panel, Roy Lilly, Aisha Hazarika and Gavin Esler, far flung wherever you may be. Thanks for uh, thanks for, for plugging in. Listeners, we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week of course subscribe to the bunker on apple podcasts follow us on twitter at bunker underscore pod and don't forget you can back us on the crowdfunding platform patreon search patreon bunker podcast to find out so that you can register for that all important live stream on thursday night aisha will be there i'll be there so will the romaniacs team and we hope to see you there thank you everybody for listening thank you to our panel and we'll see you next week goodbye The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Aisha Hazarika, Gavin Esler and Roy Lilly. The assistant producer is Jacob Archibald and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kelly Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.